Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome back to our podcast, and today it is a special one. Today's podcast is a celebration of the International Society of Hypertension Women in Hypertension Research Awardees. And joining me and representing the committee, the Women in Hypertension Research Committee, I have a new co-host for the moment, which is Dr. Carla Navis from the University of Glasgow. Carla, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Guto and Francine. Uh, thank you for having me here. Thank you. In our first of this special collaboration series, we will talk with Associate Professor Francine Marquez from Australia. Francine is a virtual charitable foundation and National Heart Foundation Fellow and head of the Hypertension Research Laboratory at Monash University. Fran has won many awards, including the ISH Mid-Career Award for Women Researchers, sponsored by the Women in Hypertension Research Committee. What is of extreme importance to us today is that Francine is a strong advocate for mentorship and for women in science. She has certainly been an inspiration to many trainees and researchers at any stage throughout her career. Interesting enough, Francine is the chair of the ISH Mentoring and Training Committee and one of the hosts of this same podcast. But today, she's sitting on the other side of the table. So with that, Fran, I would like to say welcome and already ask you, our first question, which you know which one it is. So welcome and tell us a little bit of your amazing story. Thank you, good enough. Thank you. That's very kind, very sweet. Um, yeah, so um, I guess I started my interest in science like many of the people that we interviewed um, during uh, high school, where I got really inspired by my science teacher when we're learning about genetics and I fell in love with genetics and I wanted to become a geneticist. So I went down that path uh, of studying uh, genetics, doing my master's. And at that point uh, I was in Brazil and I decided to have um, gap year and come to Australia to improve my English, travel, and yeah, just uh, uh, enjoy life a little bit before I would go back to do my PhD. And I now have been in Australia for, let me think, 16 years. So it has been a very long gap year. Mm -hmm. um, and I absolutely love it here. So I came to Australia and I fell in love with, uh, with the country and with the culture and I decided that I wanted to continue my career uh, path here instead of uh, Brazil. So I had to go and find um, PhD supervisor um, willing to uh, give me a chance. And I'll tell you that I never appreciated how hard that was. Uh, it was hard to find a supervisor, but I also now being on the other side of the table how many emails uh, supervisors get of people asking for positions that uh, we just don't have the opportunity to give everybody a chance. So um, I feel really grateful 
that uh, I, I was offered a position. And by chance, um, I had a bit of a rough start to my PhD with the wrong project, wrong supervisor, ended up changing labs. And just by chance and by luck, I ended up with uh, Professor Brian Morris uh, at, at the University of Sydney. And he changed my career path. So uh, Brian's expertise is in hypertension and that, that's how I started in the field. And, uh, and, that, um, and the reason that I saw when I saw his project and I contacted him um, was because I knew that my father had hypertension since his thirties. So it just gave me that uh, familiarity and that link uh, with home as well, knowing that, um, yeah, I had that link in the family and, and it was something that I could help uh, my family um, in the long run. So I started my PhD with Brian and I remember, I think it must have been like in the first month that I was with him that he already took me to my first conference, uh, introduced me to a lot of people. Um, it was absolutely terrifying. I'm a very scared person. <laughs> I, I get scared of people all the time. And, um, and it was terrifying to go to the first conference and know no one. And he introduced me to a lot of people. Um, and that was to the um, Australia uh, High Blood Pressure Research Council. Uh, where now I sit in the uh, executive committee and I organize the conference, which is a, a nice, uh, yeah, nice to be on the other side and now to be able to bring my students and introduce them to people. Um, so yeah, no, it was a, it was a lovely journey uh, to start the work in hypertension. And he asked me to apply to join the Australian Council, the ISH, and others and uh, gave me the first exposure to uh, not just uh, research, but also the networking and the uh, engagement side. And, uh, and as I said, that's why like, I, I really, I'm really grateful to Brian for uh, giving me a chance, for believing in me, pushing me a lot. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it, um, it was a really good uh, uh, time that I had during the PhD. And then I finished the PhD and I had to do um, a big, I had to make a big decision. In Australia, they really value what they call the international postdoc, uh, where people usually do the, post, uh, the PhD here and they go elsewhere. And for me, that was a really hard decision to make because at the time I was an international student. I didn't have any certainty that if I was ever to go um, to another country, I was ever going to be able to come back. And as I said, like, I love this country so much, I wanted to stay here. So I had to find um, supervisors in the lab that were willing to take me and support me to apply for a visa to be able to stay. And um, we're both international people in another country as well. So you, you know how hard that is. So I was able to um, apply for a position with Professor Fadi Chacha, who also sits in the ISH Council. Uh, and, uh, and I did then my first postdoctoral training with him uh, and Professor Stephen Harrop, who is also former president, and we had the uh, to interview in this podcast show. And they were both amazing. They were incredibly supportive. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and as I, I think I mentioned before, um, Paji was uh, incredible uh, in terms of giving me opportunities to engage um, with people um, overseas. And I think that that was a really important concept uh, because you don't necessarily need to do the overseas postdoc 
if you can uh, train in places that are good, but also get the networking happening. And I think sitting in international uh, committees such as the ISH really pushed me to do that. So I have made uh, incredible friends and met colleagues and uh, established those collaborations independently because of committees that I sit at, such as the uh, ISH and Paddy pushed me. I, I have been in the uh, ISH committee since I finished my PhD. So that was an incredible opportunity. And Stephen is uh, an incredibly positive person. And I remember the number of times that I walked into his office thinking, I don't know where this research is going. I'm not sure if this is going to lead anywhere. And I walked out thinking what I was doing was the best thing since his life spread. It was just so uh, inspirational. Every time you spoke to him, um, the boosting confidence that he gave you was just incredible. And, um, and to this date, many times when I have to have a tough conversation or when I have to write a tough email, I usually write the way I would write it and then I would delete it. <laughs> and then I would write again thinking, how would Stephen write this? And to a point that um, one of my mentees a few years ago told me that every time he needs to write a tough email or have a tough conversation, he thinks, how would Francine write this? And I said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. It's not me, it's Stephen. <laughs> um, so he has been incredibly inspirational in my um as becoming uh, an independent uh, researcher and, uh, and the way I think that I interact and treat people. So when I finished my uh, first training with uh, Padi, um, I had the opportunity to um, move my fellowship to the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne. And, um, and I had um, uh, Professor Jeff Head, uh, who uh, won the uh, inaugural uh, ISH Four Corner Award a few years ago, he uh, he was uh, he's my mentor, and um, he uh, gave me a lot of opportunities to um, to do collaborations, uh, to get my first uh, big grants and all of that. So he uh, was a big supporter for me to move my fellowship. So I moved to the Baker and I was under official supervision of uh, Professor David Kay, uh, who is a cardiologist. But I also had then Professor Jeff Head and uh, Gavin Lambert uh, as my uh, mentors at the Baker. And that was a really lovely time that I had the opportunity to interact and learn uh, from them a lot. But at the same time, I was uh, diagnosed with uh, stage three ovarian cancer. So I went from having to delay my first day starting uh, at the Baker because I had to have major surgery. And I started um, my first, my first day at the Baker was um, three days after I had my first chemo. So I had chemo for five months, uh, worked part-time during that period um, because I, I felt I didn't want just to be sitting at home thinking about cancer all the time. So I wanted to be able to go to work and, um, and just uh, think about other things and feel valued and feel inspired and, uh, and feel like I was contributing to something. And that really changed my perspective about the research that I did. Uh, it changed my perspective about um, the importance of science, the importance of uh, even mentoring and uh, and so many uh, other aspects of my life because it, uh, it helped to put everything into perspective. 
I think um, we as uh, young uh, people, we think we have all the time in the world. And, um, and suddenly I didn't know if I had. Um, I know the prognostics for, for uh, prognosis for, for ovarian cancer are really poor. Um, now seven years post cancer diagnosis uh, or nearly seven years. Um, but we know that one in, uh, only one in three women that are diagnosed with what I was diagnosed make it to five years. Um, I know that of the women that make it, uh, the vast majority, they are alive, but they are living with cancer. So for me to be here now talking to you without having cancer and of course being alive is uh, for me like it's a miracle. So it really changed the way that I see the work that I do and the impact that I have. And it really put things into perspective because you need, I realized that I needed to work with purpose. I needed to focus on what I really wanted to achieve. And, and for me, the priority is to help people. So in the end of the day, that's why we became medical researchers. But sometimes our research um, is like, and especially being a molecular geneticist, being a lab-based uh, researcher, the research is so far away, like perhaps a decade away at least, to be able to have an impact on people. So I, I knew I needed to have a more direct impact because uh, of fulfilling my purpose and fulfilling and um, my mission while I had time and I didn't know how much time I had. So I changed my research program to be able to have a faster and more direct impact as well as changed uh, my, uh, the way that I spend my time. And that's why I spend a lot of time uh, supporting people and uh, changed my view on science communication. So I think like we, um, we can do such a, a better job at communicating with our stakeholders, like our patients about the importance of the research we do. And that can have such a big impact and, it, and it's a much more immediate impact as well. So yes, I changed everything. So at that time, then I uh, is when I started uh, to get interested in the research in uh, microbiome, and uh, and that's when um, like the microbiome field was still very young. Uh, there was uh, just a couple of papers uh, published in Cardiovascular Disease looking into the microbiome, and uh, I started to put uh, skills and uh, experiment and background together into that and that's what my basically the only thing my lab does now is to do research into all sorts of aspects of the microbiome including um very excitingly we just finished a clinical trial and that was my first clinical trial and uh, i led the whole thing so it's really exciting to be now on the other side and and to be able to lead a lab where i have the basic research as well as the um clinical research all integrated, uh, showing that we can indeed uh, have the translational impact. So, yeah, so um, I moved to Monash. So I have now been at Monash University for three years. Uh, I had um, uh, one of the reasons I moved is uh, I had a fantastic head of school that really inspired me, really pushed me, uh, and um, I wouldn't have been promoted to head of, uh, to, uh, head of uh, lab or uh, to associate professor if it wasn't for her. She really insisted that I was ready. And uh, when um, I didn't even think I was, and, 
And I think that's uh, why also I, I believe so much in mentoring because uh, I really think that I wouldn't have stayed in research or be here today now if it wasn't for the wonderful mentors that I had along all my uh, career path in all the different stages. Yeah, so that's my story. Thank you, Francine. It's very inspiring and inspiring. Um, and uh, thank you for sharing your experience with us. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you. As you mentioned, um, you always had uh, support from your previous supervisors, from your supervisors to get involved in committees in scientific societies. So now, like, I would like to ask you, like, we know that sitting in committees is very important to advance um, career progression, but we also know that it can be very time, very time consuming, right? So uh, how, your, how has your participation in professional society committees helped you to advance in your career? That's a, that's a very good uh, question. Um, it has helped me enormously because it helped me to uh, network and especially at the international level and form new friendships, uh, form new collaborations. It has also helped me um, at the national level To get, um, to get to know people. And I think that uh, that's like the engagement and uh, forming again, new collaborations, getting my name out there. Um, I was talking to a colleague yesterday and uh, we, uh, I mentioned to her that I said, I, I receive a lot of invitations to talk in conferences and in institutes. And a lot of this come from committees that I uh, participated in and people that I met. Uh, it, was, it didn't just happen uh, by chance because they saw my name on a paper or something. It came because people became familiar with my name from uh, my contribution to in committees in particular. And yeah, no, it has been incredibly important. I think that main thing that I would say is work with purpose. I know that we all have um, time as the main limitation. Uh, that's an unlimited resource that we all have. So we need to be careful uh, with the committees that we accept to be part of. Pick the ones that actually um, give you that sparkle, that inspire you, that you want to make a contribution in, and work with, in purpose, like with purpose uh, in these committees. So see what contribution you can make and really try to drive something and drive a change for the community. That would be the main advice because it does take time, but if you're passionate about what you do, uh, you do it with pleasure and, um, and it, um, and it can uh, bring a lot of, uh, um, I guess, uh, happiness back, uh, I guess, like uh, help us to fulfill our mission, but also helps like professionally, definitely in terms of applying for fellowships, applying for uh, promotion. Uh, the engagement part is really important these days. So uh, it has definitely helped me uh, in many aspects of my career development. And it's something that I promote my students to do now. So um, for example, one of my students is now a member of the ISH, the investigator committee. Uh, another one of my students is part of the uh, similar um, committee for the high blood pressure council in Australia. So I've helped now them to also uh, do something similar because I think the service is really important. And like before we move on, I just wanted to go back like to something that you said, because I think like something that a lot of people go through and especially like uh, people from like South America and other like third world uh, or like developing countries, let's say. Uh, so you mentioned that you went for your year abroad. So you wanted to have like, you know, that uh, break to learn English and these kind of things. And you decided to stay in Australia. That was a huge decision when you're your young, your super young self, right? So 
you're just fresh in life, let's say. Uh, how was that taking, making that decision to you, especially like, you know, when you consider like your family and all those other aspects that not only career. So like, how did you deal with the different layers of your this decision making? Yeah, um, I think I was very naive and I don't think I took, I look into all these different aspects and layers when I was making the decision, I was only 21. I think for me, the main thing that mattered was how I felt about Australia. And coming from Brazil, I always felt I had to be watching over my shoulder. And suddenly in Australia, I felt I could relax and I could just be myself. I just felt that culturally, I never, I never felt like I was fitting in in Brazil. And then suddenly I felt like I found my people. So uh, I miss family, of course. Uh, I miss family and I always do. And there are some very challenging times in uh, uh, living abroad when uh, family members get sick, for example, or you miss big uh, milestones uh, in their lives. Um, but at the same time, I felt I was finally home. And it's a funny, it's a funny feeling and I, I can't really explain it, but it's, uh, it's how, how I feel, yeah. And today it is my home, yeah. And I understand because then you realize, like, I'm not a, uh, a, I'm not only a Brazilian, right? I'm a citizen of the world. So it's, it's, I, I, I understand the feeling because I had the same feeling when I left. I felt like, oh my God, am I be betraying Brazil or something? But it's like, no, I'm just, I guess, adaptable. I don't know. I guess like I'm just a curious person that likes to uh, spice it up life. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> no, that's like. Great, it's good because sometimes people are really afraid of taking those decisions and moving forward and listening to you give them courage and shows like you just need like that little tiny, tiny drop of courage to move forward. Yeah, and, and look, it is, it is challenging because um, I don't think I appreciated how hard it was to do a PhD in a second language, for example. And my English was not great. My, my English was really not great. I still wonder like how my PhD supervisor kept to take me in because yeah, my English was really not great. Um, but um, it does take a lot of courage, you know, to, to do that. And I think I appreciate that much more than I did back then. Um, but it's, you can do, you can do, but you just need the right support. Like, and, uh, and uh, you're going to ask me some questions later on about yeah, picking a lab and we'll <laughs> talk about it then, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So like talking about other questions then. So let's move to the mentoring part of, uh, of this interview. So our favorite question. So if you need to define mentorship in one word, what word would that be? Essential. I don't think I have um, ever uh, encountered someone at a, a senior level or even an emerging leader that have, haven't spoken about um, the importance of mentoring and importance of their mentors in their career path. Every single person we interviewed in this podcast, they spoke about the importance of their mentors in, um, in the continuity of their careers. And even like men the mentors that they had at different career stages. We had even one of the um, ISH presidents that spoke about mentoring to be an ISH president. So uh, absolutely, it's essential, 
Yeah, that I think it kind of uh, answer our next question that it was, do you think mentor is important? And yeah, kind yeah, of no, absolutely. Answer, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Francine, the other question I wanted to ask you is like, when in your career you realized you needed a mentor? Because as you said, mentoring is a uh, mentorship is really, as you said, essential. So when you said like, no, right now is the right time to have to seek for a mentor. And can you just explain to us how, how did you feel? When did you feel was necessary to have a mentor? Yeah, that's a really good question. And when we have interviewed in the past um, men and women, I see kind of a difference in their response. I think men very early on, they seem to have had a mentor um, that uh, they always speak about the importance of certain key mentors in their career path. While we have interviewed many women that they said, oh, I didn't realize I needed a mentor until much later in their uh, career. At least that's my how I have been observing. And I feel a bit like that. Like I feel like that I was incredibly lucky that I had a supervisor who also acted as a mentor for me. But having an external mentor, it's not something that I realized that I needed until the end of my PhD. And it, it actually happened by a bit of a chance because I didn't even know that I could get a mentor. Uh, although I had people, I guess, in my life that stepped in and act as a mentor for certain aspects. But my first official mentor was uh, Professor Gavin Lambert, who I met in a conference and when um, the ISH protocol for the first type of the mentoring scheme that they had, that we at the time, we as mentees would send like a photo and a few lines about ourselves and they would send that to all the members and then the members would put their hand up and say, yeah, I'm happy to mentor this person. Gavin got back and said, yeah, I'm happy to mentor you. So uh, he was my first official mentor. And, uh, and then I have had many other mentors since. And it got to a stage in my career that I realized that I had amazing mentors and they're all male. And, and I specifically went and, uh, and asked uh, um, Professor Julie McMullen from the Baker Institute to be my female mentor because I felt that I needed that other perspective as well. So, but, but I have been incredibly fortunate to have mentors that they have always been there for me. And, uh, and I guess many of the relationships have evolved now over the years, um, but they're still there when I need them. So Francine, you mentioned before that like, <clears throat> and I think like it matches uh, with what you're talking here about men mentoring. Uh, so you mentioned that during your postdoc, I think if I understood right, Australia has the culture of like, you need to do your postdoc outside like an international postdoc, which yeah. is similar to Brazil, right, Carla? Because I remember yeah. when people were applying for positions in Brazil and I was, and this is, uh, uh, the whole thing is public, so you can go and watch. And I was watching my friends and that question always popped. Yeah. Why I didn't go to an international lab to do like a sandwich program or uh, to do part of your PhD or to do a postdoc? Uh -huh. But you didn't, you stay and you said that you're afraid of not being able to come back as a foreign and everything. So how, how that, uh, how were you able to do that? And how mentorship, like your mentors helped you uh, through that? Can just expand a little bit on that part, but I think that's going to be extremely interesting for whoever's listening to this. So uh, 
Um, in terms of uh, being able to establish networks, the IS, sitting in ISH committees was incredibly helpful uh, to get me started. And that was uh, Professor Pari Chacha, who um, was not even a question. It was like he walked into my office one day and said, I put your name down for a committee. And, <laughs> and being my boss is like, oh, okay, yeah. So, uh, so that's how I actually started. Like that was not even a question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what we're doing and uh, like what is the committee for I said, yeah, okay yeah you put my name you're my boss yeah. um, so was uh, that's how it got started but then I also had the opportunity um, to go and develop uh, new techniques so for example for one of the projects that we're working on um, I discovered that there was a technique that was going to be the best technique to do the experiment and at the time those like two machines in the in Australia uh so I contact people, establish a new collaboration, and I spend a month in a, another lab in another city doing the experiments. Uh, I did that a few times. I went to uh, Professor Machi Tomaseski, our current uh, ISH president's lab as well, a few times to do some experiments in his lab. So um, that really gave me some opportunities to develop new skills, uh, meet new people, and, um, and have, I guess, a little bit more of that uh, international exposure as well. And I think like that's important. So people need to realize that just because people say that that's the rule or that's what the majority of people do or the culture that people believe that they are in, it doesn't mean that your story or whatever you're going to do is going to be exactly the same thing, right? You show that even in staying in Australia, you were able to do the exact same thing that somebody would do if they were in international waters, let's yeah. say. And look, um, it was... Uh... It was hard, like I think looking back a few years, I thought that perhaps uh, I was not going to be able to make it to lab head one day because of that decision. So it was incredibly hard. And, uh, and I had a, lo a lot of doubts about whether that was, that was the best decision for me. Um, but it, it like, I, of course I can't change it. Uh, but at the same time, I had a lot of other opportunities and I still was able to get like uh, to secure fellowships that are some of the most competitive ones in the country, uh, even thought I decided to stay. So don't really feel that, um, you know, that because you didn't uh, do the international postdoc or you missed out on one opportunity here and there, that that's it. Create your own opportunities. Like there is yeah. always a way to do those things. So make sure you're creating and make sure that you're talking to your mentors and asking them for advice of how to. And if your mentors are not helping, get new mentors. Yeah, yeah exactly. And again, a drop of courage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great, Francine. Um, so in terms of um, just moving back to mentoring now, uh, so in terms of your mentoring style, how, how would you describe your mentoring style? And also like if you could, you could give us some examples any examples of way, ways you have helped uh, any of your mentees would be really, really good for us to hear. Okay, so mentoring style. Um, I would say that I'm a busy person. I think most uh, mentors are busy people. So usually I expect my mentees to be the ones driving the relationship. So booking meetings and telling me what they need and want. So I usually have, uh, I make myself available. So they have my mobile number, 
if they need anything, they are always welcome to call. And there'll be times that they will send me a text message saying something happened. I need um, I need to talk through to see how I can handle this. Do you have a moment? So I have done that a few times where um, where you just drop everything and uh, have a quick conversation and said, have you considered doing this? Have you considered approaching this? How about you ask a question this way? Um, but I also have helped uh, mentees, giving them feedback uh, to uh, like fellowship applications, grant applications, helping them um, get positions in committees, nominating them to awards. Um, I think like building, uh, building skills as well and encouraging them to build skills. So one of my mentees, we had uh, the pleasure to sit in the same committee together but we had different roles. And uh, while she was still in a more junior position, every time that she wanted to propose a new initiative, we would talk about the initiatives first. So that helped that the moment that she proposed it, we already had spoken about some of the major challenges that she could face and she already had strategies in place to explain that. So giving them the opportunity to have their um, exposure and uh, I guess is sponsoring them. So yeah, I think that many different ways that uh, I have helped my uh, mentees, but I think it is about talking to them and saying what they want, but uh, expecting that they, they are going to come up with those, even if in the beginning they don't know. And I think that that's the main thing is that a lot of people, they don't know specifically what they want to get out of mentoring, but it's about developing the relationship and giving them opportunities to learn about what they can achieve. And and Fran, you mentioned now that like you you rather not rather but like you expect them to drive the relationship. What else do you think like a, a good mentee should have? Uh, I think being curious uh, and being willing to open up and talk about what are the main challenges that they are facing. Um, being uh, open to listen to feedback and take on the feedback because I think, I think that's actually quite important because I think um, a lot of people will give them feedback and they're just not willing to act on it. So you need to be uh, flexible and you need to be willing to um, take on the feedback and, and try to make a change based on that if that's what you want for your career um, path. So yeah, I think, yeah. Being able to open up, being able to listen. Great. Um, so, Francine, now we want your advice. So, we know lots of a lot of people. Uh, they have a hard time to decide um, where which lab to go or um, like which environment, like uh, the environment. Of the lab, if the environment of the, the lab is good, and if they will feel um, okay in the new environment. So, we want to hear from you an advice on how to identify a good training environment? I think that's a, a really good point uh, that I mentioned earlier that sometimes uh, people look uh, and see like a, a famous uh, lab head, uh, very senior lab head, and that's where they want to go because perhaps they published, I don't know, a nature paper or um, they just gave like a very impressive talk um, I think I think if that's what the only thing that is important to you, 
uh, sure, like you need to know like what is important to you when you're looking for a lab and that's that's personal, but make sure that you also have good support and the environment of the lab is important. So don't go just and join the lab uh, without talking to the other people that are in the lab or former people that are in the lab. Go and meet people because these are the people that are going to be supporting you. And especially if your lab head is very senior, they are not going to have much time. So you need to be prepared that you're not uh, going to have a lot of interaction with them. And the other people in the lab are going to have a key role in your mentoring and helping you develop these skills. So you need to make sure that you are on board with the other people as well. Um, Sometimes picking a, a lab where uh, it's a smaller lab or it's a more junior lab head, you might have the opportunity to spend more time with your lab head. Uh, and I guess that's one of the benefits like in the, um, joining like a team like mine, because I do spend like for me, my team is my priority. I meet with my team members every single week, even if it's just to say, how are you doing? Uh, how was your weekend? Is anything that I can help you? But uh, being able to be there and listen uh, to them is one of the key things that I can offer uh, and the uh, more direct mentoring compared to, I guess, some of our uh, more senior lab heads that won't have time for that, especially if they have very big labs. So um, I, would, uh, I would just consider what is your main um, expectation, but having good mentoring, that lab will be fundamental so if you don't, uh, if, if it's a very uh, senior and very busy lab head, who is going to be able to mentor you and give you advice and support you to learn things in the lab? Not just the um, lab skills or uh, like uh, clinical skills, if you're a clinical researcher, but think about all the other skills that we need to learn as we are, um, as we are trying to build independence as well and, and um, think about, for example, writing skills, uh, statistical analysis and skills interacting with people about science communication, about uh, budgeting, uh, marketing, because that's grant writing, right? Um, all the other skills that we actually need to acquire as scientists that uh, we are not really taught. And this comes a lot from your uh, lab head and from your team. So they're really important skills that you need to make sure that there's someone there to help you. Definitely. And I'm seeing like, uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that, like a good training environment. You mentioned in the beginning that during your PhD, you had to change labs and project. Um, so how was that? I think like that's the perfect time for us to expand a little bit yeah. on that situation, right? Yeah. So. Because I, I think a lot of people go through that. Uh, so do, would, would you mind giving yeah, us a yeah, little no, bit more? Yeah, no, that's okay. Uh, yeah, it, it was a long time ago. I can talk about it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was hard. It was hard making the decision. But it got to a point that it was, uh, I had two choices. I was going to drop out of the PhD and never finish a PhD or have to go um, back to Brazil. I don't know. Um, do a PhD there with a supervisor that I knew that was a good supervisor, or I would have to change labs. And, um, and the main reason for that was, um, was the supervisor. There was no, uh, yeah, there was no other uh, reason. Uh, it was because I had really poor supervision and, uh, and I tried everything I could at the time with the skills I had and the tools I had and the support I had to make the project work. And there were key issues with the methodology that I tried to talk to my supervisor and he wouldn't listen. 
until I designed an experiment to prove him that what I was telling him that was happening was right. And I was told I was basically uh, close to a year into my PhD. And, I and he told me I had to start the project again because the advice he had given me in the beginning was wrong. And the support was just uh, horrendous. So what happened was that I went to my uh, annual, uh, in, in Australia, we have annual um, meetings with our, like with an external panel. And I went to that panel, uh, I went to the chair and I told the chair what was happening. I said, I don't think I can do this anymore. And he said, then you're going to find a new lab and you're going to start again. And, uh, and it took an enormous amount of courage to try to do that. Um, and that's why I said, like, I'm, I'm, I'll always be grateful to Brian for taking me in because not only taking an international student, but taking a student that is coming from another lab where they tell you that they are not um, yeah, doing well is uh, incredibly brave uh, from him as well to do. So, yeah, and it was the best thing I did. So okay. I think like if you if you not if you're having troubles with your supervisor with your project, first of all consider like all the options. Uh, go and talk to your co-supervisors. Talk to your uh, mentors. If you don't have a mentor, find a mentor. If you have um, a postgraduate uh, coordinator that you can go and talk to, talk to them as well. It's not a decision that you should make lightly because it has huge impacts and implications. Like. In my case, I was on a scholarship. The time that I spent on that project, I never gained that time back. So I had to finish the PhD with the remaining time. And that was challenging, but it's, it's, it was doable. Um, but um, don't, don't make the decision because you had one disagreement with the supervisor. Um, it needs to have some, I guess, major uh, issues in both the project or the supervision that you really cannot work through it, um, even if you have the support. So, uh, but it's, yeah, it was a hard decision to make, but make sure you, if you want to make the decision that you have the right support in place. So it was a hard decision, but also very intimidating or a series of intimidating meetings, which is the topic of our next question. <laughs> so Francine, talking about intimidation, uh, how did you deal with that? Or how do you do deal with that? Gosh, it's hard. It's really hard. I feel intimidated by a lot of people, a lot of people, including as um, we mentioned before, in one of the interviews, I felt so intimidated halfway the interview we were doing um, that I couldn't even talk. I think it was just after when I was editing the interview that I actually could listen back and relax and uh, I feel, oh, okay, that wasn't that bad. Um, so I feel intimidated a lot. And I don't know if it's me, if it's a woman thing, what it is. Um, so a lot of the time, I feel also, um, uh, I'm still very uh, junior. I'm still less than 10 years post, uh, or just reaching out the 10 years post PhD. And I feel I still have, sometimes I have some really tough conversations with some uh, like people that are way more senior than uh, I am. And it is just taking a deep breath and stepping into my courage and stepping into my values and having those tough conversations if I have to. Uh, because um, I know that if I don't do that, I'm going to feel uh, uncomfortable for the rest of my life thinking that I should have done it. While if I have the courage to 
step into my values and have those tough conversations, their uncomfort is going just to last for a few minutes. <laughs> so that's usually how I did it. But it was not always like that. I feel that is these days a lot of expectations because of me being a lab head and being an associate professor that I have to have tough conversations and I can't be intimidated, which is totally not true because, as I said, I feel intimidated and it's not because I decide I push myself to have tough conversations. That means that I'm not uncomfortable to do it. Um, but it was not always like that. Um, I remember my first international conference. It was uh, one of the SHR conferences that uh, they run in um, parallel with the ISH every four years. And it was in Canada. And I went and I didn't know anyone. And I remember that I saw that... Um, and uh, Kurtz was uh, the main, um, the main, uh, the keynote speaker. And I remember that at the time I had just read a lot of papers that he was the senior author. And I was so excited, like, you know, to, oh my God, it's the person on the paper I read. I was so excited. And I wanted to go and say hi. And I could not. I went, like, I tried to go so many times and I just, I was so, so shy, so, so shy. I could not go. So I decided I made peace with myself after I think I tried like several times. I made peace with myself that it was not going to happen. So I went uh, to present in one of the sessions and I sat down like at the front rows to present. And he comes, he sits next to me. He looks at my badge and he says, oh, you were friend St. Marcus. You're doing your PhD with my friend Brian Morris. I'm Ted Kurtz. How are you? And I was like, I know who you are. <laughs> But what I realized at that moment is that as intimidating as, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, senior uh, person, big name, lab head and all of that, they can be they're just people. In the end of the day, they're just people like us. So he was so lovely. And that that encounter helped me so much that every other time that I had to go and actually introduce myself to someone I just thought of that moment of how lovely he was. That it was nothing that I needed to be afraid of. So it made it so much easier. And, um, and I remember now I see him probably every four years at the same conference and he still remembers, man remembers my name. And even I went to San Francisco where he lived some years ago with my husband and uh, he uh, took us out for dinner and he's just the most lovely person. So um, they're just people. So if you feel intimidated, just think back that they're just people. They are, you know, a, um, a son or a daughter to someone. They are someone's uh, brother, sister. They're someone's parent. You know, they're just people. And the intimidation sometimes is in your head, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel intimidated by lots of people, but I will take your advice, definitely, absolutely. <laughs> so Francine, um, we are going to change a little bit the uh, gears um, and talk a, a little bit about diversity and inclusion. And um, I, I wanted to ask you, what do you think, what do you think is the biggest issue around diversity and inclusion? And um, if you also like can tell us what you think uh, we can change, uh, like how we can change that in our field. Yeah, I'll look at there's so many issues. Um, I would say that the first thing is just uh, privilege. 
I think the biggest barrier is privilege that uh, we don't even realize that there are people that are not like us, that uh, are not like uh, um, not like the people we know and can relate to. And we don't realize the challenges they face. I think the moment that you start talking to people and you realize the challenges that they have faced in their lives or, or uh, challenges in the world in general, you realize how privileged we are and, uh, and how we need to change things to be able to give everybody um, that same um, privilege. So I think that... Um, came to me when we spoke to um, Dr. Annette Kirabo uh, in, uh, some months ago, that she talks about you know, her, um, her upbringing in Uganda and how um, she had then to move to the US and learn even like little things like culture, uh, cultural norms, how to interact with people and all of that and things that I, I just took as a privilege, you know, having education, uh, not having to fight to go to school, some of those basic things. So I think it's it's privilege. It's about looking uh, looking into a different perspective and walking into other people's shoes. And and for that we can talk about you know the um, the issues that women face, uh, the issues that we have with different uh, races, uh, with different uh, ethnicities, different religions, um, different. Uh, uh, I guess, oh, yeah, there's so many. Yeah, there's so, so many. What we uh, did, and I'm, that's something that I'm really excited, and I hope by the time that this podcast comes out, uh, it is going to be available. We just um, wrote a roadmap uh, for supporting cardiovascular researchers, and, um, and it just got accepted into um, a big journal in our field. And I'm really, really excited to see uh, that that's going to come out. And I hope it's going to have a huge impact, breaking some of these barriers and talking about what we can actually do to support our researchers to have a better work environment, a better, a better sector in general. Because I think there's so many barriers that um, what, what happens because of the barriers that we have in place at the moment is that people that don't look like they're... Um, like some of our senior leaders, um, they become underrepresented. And be because they are underrepresented, there are no changes to try to increase their representation and they drop out. That's why we see uh, that like women usually drop out when they reach my career stage because it, it's hard. It's really, really hard. There's so many uh, conscious and unconscious bias against uh, women against uh, people of uh, different uh, um, skin colors and uh, all sorts of other things. Uh, there's so many, so many issues. So I think we really need to uh, try to change many things in our field um, to try to uh, embrace all types of diversity and make sure that we can support and foster this diversity to grow to the top, to become our next leaders and, uh, and that's going to help us so much to drive innovation, to drive uh, the changes that we need uh, to find the biggest solutions that we need for cardiovascular health. And, and Fran, if you don't mind, I would like to go back to the, the period that you said, like when you found out that you had the cancer and all of that, because you mentioned that you have to change a lot of your career for you to have like this fast track 
sort of like approach for you to kind of like get back the the time lost and this kind of things. And I think like this is very important for diversity and inclusion because a lot of people, unfortunately, they do go through these career breaks or these career bumps uh, due to health and other issues that you're talking about. So how was that? Like, uh, do, do you think like, if there is, I don't know if in Australia that is, I may be saying something really stupid here, but if you think in Australia, there was uh, some sort of like fellowship or support for people like you that went through that horrible phase that would affect your career, things would be easier for you. You didn't even need to think about doing like a fast track or think about changing so much in your career, professional life for you to be able to cope and adapt. So, yeah, so do you mind like giving us a little perspective on that aspect? So, I think for me, the change was positive. I think that was more of a um, transformation that I had to go in my personal and professional life. And uh, I'm actually happier that I did that. So, I don't see, of course, I, I wish I never had cancer, but I don't see that the change that I, I did after that was negative. Actually, I feel happier. If, uh, if that makes sense, I feel happier with the outcome because I feel I actually spend so much more time with uh, the things that matter in my life, with people, supporting people, driving research that I am really proud of. Um, so I don't see the change as a negative. I think what happened was in terms of driving my professional mission and knowing better what I wanted to achieve uh, in terms of my professional mission was important, but also knowing my values and knowing what drives me. So for me, everything that I do uh, is uh, based on uh, fairness and accountability. These are the two primary values that drive every single decision I make. And every time that I say, do I say yes to this or do I say no? Is it going to be able to advance, help me advance my uh, cause? Can I use this uh, to support my values? So it, it gave me that realization. So that's something that I have been working with uh, Dr. Uh, Rachel uh, Climey here in Australia. Uh, and we are actually trying to devise a series of uh, uh, or a workshop to try to help people identify the professional mission and identify their values. And that's something that perhaps we can try to uh, offer to uh, ISH uh, members as well. Um, now, you mentioned about support. What does support look like? There's no support. I don't think anyone expects a postdoc at 31 years of age to have cancer and have to go part-time. I think it was a big shock to my supervisor at the time because I was just starting in his lab and I had to tell him I can't start. I have to delay my start because I was just diagnosed with cancer. And I was incredibly lucky that I was on an independent fellowship. So that meant that I had my own salary. So it didn't, it didn't hurt, I guess, the lab in that sense that uh, it didn't impose in the lab that I was not going to be there or um, that he was going to pay me and I was not going to be there. So I took the decision uh, um, away because of my uh, fellowship, but that's not, that's a privilege. That's not what most people that go through career disruptions have. So I do think we need to have better systems in place. Um, there is a big push these days, you know, particularly for women and women returning from our parental leave. Um, to have more support, but I, I really don't think that that's enough. I think there is this um, 
view that women, uh, they go on the parental leave and then they come back and nothing is going to change. While most of these women, they're still sleep deprived. The babies are getting sick all the time because they're being looked um, up in like childcare facilities and others. So they are constantly actually having to take time away. Um, there is also that momentum that was lost. There's so, there's so many issues that I think we just don't consider enough. And I think it's not just about the parental leave itself, but it's about the return to the workplace and the return in the, uh, to the research that we need to have much more focus in terms of support. Um, there are some fellowships, I guess, these days that are focused on uh, women in particular, for example, uh, after having parental leave. Um, but I don't think that that's an, like the number of uh, fellowships and the number of uh, grant schemes and all of that is enough. In Australia, they do what they call relative to opportunity. So in most grant schemes these days, you can write a statement of what have been, the, uh, uh, if you have any pre-interruptions or any challenges that have slowed down or stopped your progress. But it's, it's so hard to how those are evaluated. And I think a lot of reviewers just don't really uh, understand or consider that. And they perhaps, perhaps it's just because they haven't walked in the shoes of that person and they can't really relate to what they are uh, saying in their statements. So uh, we still have a long way to go. I think we have seen improvements in the field, particularly since I started in, the, in science, but um, we have a long way to go still. And Fran, now talking about like women as um, women, women more specifically, do you have an advice for women in research? Um, get mentors, not just one, get a team of mentors. It's important that you have diversity in your mentoring teams as well. Okay. So I clearly have a little dog coming to visit. <laughs> um, Get uh, also support from your supervisors. Ask for what you need. Don't expect people just to um, know what you need. Uh, ask for what you need, for what, what support you need, what support looks like from your supervisors, from your team as well. Uh, be open and willing to have these conversations uh, because as a supervisor, I know I'm always willing to support my team, but if I don't know that they need something, there's nothing I can do. Also, um, if you think that there are things that can improve in your institution, uh, go and talk to a supervisor, go and talk to uh, people that have the, the power to change things. Talk about the challenges, because if you don't talk about the challenges, there's nothing we can do to change those. And what you are going through is likely to be uh, similar to other uh, women. So go and talk uh, to try to drive the challenge as well. And you don't need to do it alone, like look for support, like look for internal mentors, look for um, ask your supervisor to support you and so on. So I think there's a lot that we can uh, we can do, but as also as women that we can drive the change to other women as well. Yeah, those like are, are really great uh, advices, Francine. Thank you. So our last question, <laughs> Francine, is about the pandemic because we know uh, the last the past two years have struck us, like especially in, uh, for us junior uh, researchers. So 
and we know uh, we, we are still facing lots of challenges. So we um, just wanted to know from you if you have any ideas about how um, uh, or what our community can do better to support us junior researchers during the, 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 the pandemic, because everyone knows and we are still struggling with that. So do you have any advices or any suggestions or what do you think we can do to, to or people can do to help and support junior researchers during this really hard time? The first thing is encourage your um, students and your postdocs to find external mentors. They need to have a support network and people that they can talk to. One of the ways that you can do that is by professional societies such as the ISH. Uh, you can, uh, it's super easy to apply for mentoring scheme and we match you with someone uh, international, international. It's really good for your career development as well. Think about what skills that they need to develop uh, that because of the pandemic uh, being limited. One of these uh, is presenting. Like I have PhD students who have never presented face-to-face. Uh -huh. uh, since they started their PhD. So how are they going to cope in the moment that we actually have to present face-to-face? -face? So create opportunities for them to develop those skills that uh, we're lacking at the moment. Uh, if you have PhD students, talk to institutions about extending their scholarships because they would have lost a lot of time that uh, at least my, my students did that they didn't have access to the lab or our clinical trial had to be stopped several times because of... Uh, um, like uh, regional restrictions as well. So see how you can extend uh, funding, extend uh, funding for the students, funding for the projects as well. Um, yeah, there are many, many things. And I think we, uh, I think one of the major challenges is how we're going to quantify this impact going forward, because perhaps uh, the gap that we're going to see in CVs is not immediate, but the gap is going to be in two to three years from now where we're going to see that people were less productive because they didn't have access to the resources that they need to continue their projects. So how, how we can ensure that that impact is not forgotten in a few years when hopefully the situation with COVID is better. Thank you so much. I think it was a great interview and uh, you, are, you, you were a great interviewee, like one of my favorites. So uh, oh, thank you, thank you for so sharing fun. your story, your perspectives, like everything. I think you, you touched like points that a lot of uh, our listeners <laughs> will mm -hmm. really, really appreciate and needed to, to hear those. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. My, my pleasure and my honor to be able to be on the other side now. <laughs>